VI Shots Podcast, episode number 31. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of VI Shots. My name is Michael Ivaliotis, and this is the podcast devoted to the world of LabVIEW. With each episode, I bring you interviews, discussions, and share with you ideas for how you can take your LabVIEW development to the next level. Well, hello again, everyone, and uh, welcome to this episode of VI Shots. I'm very excited to have today Fabiola de la Cueva, who is uh, with us uh, today. Welcome, Fabiola. Hi, Michael. It's a pleasure to meet, for me to be here. Uh, Fabiola, we just talked uh, about a year ago, actually. It was at an iWeek. It was last year at an iWeek, but uh, we never managed to get that interview out. We're, I have you back here today, and uh, I'm glad I did because uh, I have a... We have a presentation that you did uh, this this past NI week, uh, 2013, called, um, I think, well, I, I, I know it as Fab's Five Little Things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I guess that's the informal name. Uh, I also did a version of this presentation at the CLA Summit, and it was called The Little Things. But the the title that we used at NI week that was more flashy was How to Polish Your Software and Development Process to Wow Your End Users. Uh, I guess I needed to do some marketing to get more people in the room. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't everybody know who Fab is, right? <laughs> yeah. So we should I, just... I, they, they just know that I'm the I, I'm fabulous and modest. Emphasis on the modest. And uh, you're an independent uh, LabVIEW consultant. Uh, you have uh, your website uh, where people can find information about you is delacor.com. That's spelled D-E-L-A-C-O-R.com. When did you start becoming an independent consultant? Is that something that you started from the beginning or is that something that you evolved into? Uh, it, it was actually, uh, I was very lucky. I, I tell this story to some of my friends that are consultants and they, they get angry at me because uh, they say, oh, you had it too easy. Uh, so what happened is I used to work for NI. I worked for National Instruments from 2000 to 2006. And uh, then I decided to go do my master's. And I was doing my master's in electrical engineering, specializing in medical devices, because up to that point, I always thought of myself as a hardware engineer. And when I started at the University of Texas, uh, people start finding out that I knew LabVIEW and they started hiring me to do projects. And I found several things there. I found one was that I really enjoyed uh, programming in LabVIEW and working on LabVIEW all day. Two, I was good at it. And, you know, and third, people were willing to pay me money for it. And it's like, okay, let me back up. I was going to do my master's so I could start my own business. It seems like I already have a business. So I just kept going with that. Um, I started when I was doing my master's, uh, Jeffrey Travis, he's one of the authors uh, for the Lobby for Everyone book, uh, found out about me and he hired me for some projects. So I started working under his wing and, you know, pretty soon I started also getting my own customers. So I would say I started the consulting business around 2007. Um, that's when Delacour uh, came to be. But I started doing uh, lobby work in 2006. And I've never had uh, to do any marketing or sales. It's just basically word of mouth. Has, that's how I have been getting my my projects. I've also had uh, the honor of working uh, with JKI as a contractor um, and learning from uh, that team of very experienced developers. So it has been it has been quite an adventure. And like I said, it's really been something that I did not plan. It just happened, and I've enjoyed it every. Uh, day, I love to work on LabVIEW. And so you uh, you said you were working for NI around around 2000. Uh, were you using LabVIEW at that point? Yes. Um, I I actually didn't know any LabVIEW before I joined NI. I just, you know, had seen it once. Um, when I was in Mexico, I worked for Procter & Gamble, and, uh, and I was in the control and systems uh, team. Uh, and one day, you know, a national instrument salesperson came to visit and just put a demo of LabVIEW and I saw it. And th- but that was it. That's all I knew about. Uh, and I and also a friend of mine, uh, Juan Carlos uh, Castillo, I knew he went to work for NI, but that was it. Um, I started in NI, I did like about three years uh, in applications engineering. I was uh, manager there and also in charge of training of new employees. 
And um, and when I was there, that's when I started actually learning LabVIEW. And I actually used to do support uh, on the phone on English, Spanish, Portuguese, and French for LabVIEW. Wow, you know a lot of different languages. Yeah, I was. It was. It was really tough. I I would only get a little, uh, you know, message on the screen on the phone that would say French or Spanish or Portuguese, and that's all I, my brain had to switch languages. So sometimes it worked out well, but other times I would end up just, you know, speaking a mix of different languages. So <laughs> uh, if are there are any of the customers out there that had to put up with me, I'm sorry. So you basically got more involved in LabVIEW after you, after you left Anai, and then you started doing your own company, doing contracting. And uh, before we got on the air, we were talking about uh, how you are so busy that you, you're possibly thinking of getting more people to help you out. Yeah, right now I have, uh, I, I've been working with contractors, and it's, it's working okay, but I, I'm thinking that... Uh, I'm seriously thinking about hiring uh, someone full-time and start building more of a team of, uh, of LabVIEW stars to work on projects. It is a big step, so I'm, you know, taking it uh, slowly and trying to think all the pros and cons before making that leap. But that's definitely I'm looking uh, into very seriously. So this this presentation you uh, you got you gave it an eye. Uh, it, it's evolved over time, but c- talk a little bit about how you came up with this idea for the presentation. And then just to remind people, it's called "How to Polish Your Software and Development Process to Wow Your Users or Your End Users." So um, one of the things that I started realizing after you know trying to uh, work with other people or figuring out, like people would ask me. How is it that you get, you know, business? And I and I, I really was trying to figure out what was it that was making my work so different that you know uh, customers uh, were, you know, were coming to me and 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 I and I also kind of this idea also finding who I wanted to work with. Uh, I needed to figure out what well, what was that uh, thing that made the difference, and I started realizing that it was the little things. And, and this actually happened with uh, one contractor I was working with. Um, we we deliver the first release, the first proof of concept for a customer, and the customer came back saying that the you know the the program didn't work. And I was like, but we you know we had everything on the checkbox of all the requirements they wanted for that first phase were, were met. And we did a uh, you know share screens and start working with them. And I realized that the reason they didn't like it or they said that it didn't work was because when they would cancel the browse the file browse uh, window, mm-hmm. they would get the error from LabVIEW operation cancel by user error forty three. Yeah. And there were a lot of little things like that that were making the customer upset. And it was things that, for me, are kind of like second nature uh, and that I always do. It, it doesn't matter if they're on the requirements document or not. Mm-hmm. So I started kind of taking a step back and figuring out what is it that I do that makes that difference? Because I would have done everything else this contractor made. I would have done exactly the same. However, my reaction from my customers uh, before that had always been very different. Um, so I, you know, I, I I joke that when I'm delivering a, a, a program and I'm sitting I'm sitting behind the the user, and I count the numbers of ah, ash because those are the things that they're not gonna tell you I don't like the program, but if you hear enough frustration while they're working, <laughs> you know they're not gonna be as lenient when they're reporting bugs. The, you, if, you, can, you can hear the exasperation in their in their breathing. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it, or if you if you see them uh, doing something like like rough movements with the mouse, uh, so they might not tell you that they're not happy with the program. But there's going to be enough um, physical interaction there, and you can even do it on Skype by sharing windows and just hearing them on the on the on your headset, and that might give you enough an idea. Uh, so that's that's how this started. It's like, okay, I need to find out what those little things are, and maybe I can teach them to other people. And uh, and I also now I have a lot of sympathy for National Instruments LabVIEW uh, people that are developing LabVIEW because they have to worry about us as end users, but we're also developers, and then about our end users' experience, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's why user events are called user events. Uh, I think they should be called customized events or dynamic events, 
because uh, they're not really user events. But if you think from the person at National Instruments, that's the developer that was working on this, it was a user event because it was a LabVIEW user that was going to be using it. Um, so anyway, yeah, this, there's a lot of, a lot, I mean, I can talk for hours about uh, this topic, so. That's yeah. So, ba so, so basically, what you, what you're saying is, um, you know, when you say the user experience of your software, uh, that's if you're creating an application that that does some control or whatever, and you have a user interface and uh, functionality. So that's the that's, that's the user of your software. Uh, but there's also the users that are maybe users of your API, right? Yes. Um, users of your tools that help them develop better LabVIEW. Uh, but those are those are end users as well. So you have to have. So you're saying that there's these two categories of end users: there's the end users of your application, and then the end users of your tools, uh, of the developers, right? Yes, who use, exactly. Who use LabVIEW? You basically have to know who your end who your end user is. Who your who is the customer? Who is the person using that thing that you created? And then focus uh, and make their life a lot easier. As, yeah. as much as possible. Um, and uh, the same thing that I just said about counting the number of uh, ash and frustration, uh, you can also hear that from your team. So you can have the best framework in the world, the most technical, most advanced and everything. But if it's a pain for your developer team to set it up and get started, it's not going to get used or it's going to get misused. So you also have to uh, create, you know, have them in mind. So you've... Uh, distilled it down to five things, and uh, let's let's talk about uh, the number one item. You say users judge an application by its cover. Um, what do you mean by that? So even before we jump into that, there was I, I think there was a quote that I that I said that uh, that I kind of like summarizes the whole thing, mm -hmm. and um, I, I, it was written by Robert Hugman Jr. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And he said, uh, each moment has the potential to increase a user's confidence or destroy his trust in a product or a company. And each one is an important piece of the whole experience. Why? Because the task a person is attempting to complete at any given moment is the most important task to that person at that moment. So as developers, it's our job to make sure nothing goes wrong, to make sure the moment is enjoyable and productive and help, helps our user feel smart. And I think, I mean, I think that really just drives everything is if you make the experience enjoyable and you let the solution come forward and the application go to the background, I think you succeeded. So when I talk about, uh, you know, users judge an application by its cover is the first impression they're going to have is going to come from even the installation process. And it can even start even before that is how do you get them the application? How do you do the deployment? So if you're doing, for example, a tool, uh, are you just going to send them zip files with uh, BIs that they have to install? Or did you just send a nice uh, BI uh, package or, or a configuration file for BI Package Manager and just tell them right-click, apply configuration, and that's it? So that, that is the first experience they have with your application. Uh, as a developer, as an end user, the first interaction they have with your application is the getting the installer, mm -hmm. installing, and then that is splash screen, that first, uh, you know, this is what you're about to use uh, application. So, and, and that applies to people, you know, you've heard over and over, first impressions are hard to raise. I mean, same thing applies with software. That particular customer that got so annoyed with Error 43, it was really hard to turn him around because already he had the impression that the program did not work just because of that. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, personally, when I install software, if I see that the software doesn't even install properly, I'm... Very disappointed. <laughs> I have very low expectations for the actual software to work. Yeah, and your confidence level goes down. Yeah, uh, you know, so it's 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 that attention to detail that again, nobody's going to put on a requirements document. Nobody's going to say, you know, I want you to have all the uh, these little things taken into account. That's something that, as uh, as an experienced developer, you're going to bring to the table. Yeah, I mean, you can call that also customer experience. Um, you know, the whole the look and feel of your so how basically how uh, your customer perceives the the quality is basically not actual quality is perceived quality right yes 
Yes, and, and and I even gave an example of a blog report that I had uh, from a quality assurance uh, uh, person and uh, one of the customers that I have. Uh, early on, he said, you know, uh, the installer does not actually install the application. And I was like, what do you mean? And I just start going through the repro, uh, the reproduction steps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said, well, double-click in the setup uh, executable launches the installer. I follow all the prompts. Uh, but then after the application is finished, if I go to the start menu, I don't see the executable there. And his conclusion was, I need to reinstall the application every time I want to use it. I mean, I felt horrible, right? It's like, oh my God, I thought it was a very uh, beginner mistake because the installer, the build installer um, settings in LabVIEW lets you select to put your executable in the start menu. And you, and you had missed that one. I missed that one. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, at the beginning, I was like, oh, come on, you just go to C program files. And then I was like, wait a minute. He doesn't need to, it's not his obligation as an end user to know that the application gets installed in program files. That's why Windows adds this facility for you to go find applications that just installed. Um, yeah, so, I, I usually put it in the start menu and on the desktop because uh, there's, there's multiple kinds of users. Some people like to see it in both, you know. Well, and then you even you get into uh, where you know the installer for an I falls short, uh, and you start to use uh, tools like Deploy that let you uh, have custom uh, pop-ups and stuff that ask actually ask the user. Some users mm, get yeah. upset because you go and put things on their start menu and their desktop. Yep. So you give them the option. Okay, I have a link for you at the desktop, and I also have a, a link for the start menu. So which one do you want? And you know, by default, you select both, but. And this this bug report uh, was it an actual one or is it just a was it a real oh, it, th- yeah it was a real thing it was a real <laughs> thing I, I in my presentation I used some of a, like comic uh, style just because I wanted to make it funny but this yeah. was an actual uh, customer of mine so the installer at the end it, I think it asks you do you want to run the application right is it yes that? yeah so then when it once the installer reached the end they said okay and then it launched the application but then they had no way of getting back to that application. Like how yes. do I find it? <laughs> yes, and it was. I and again, I laughed so hard at the beginning, and then I was like, "Oh, wait a second. I mean, it is obvious for me, but it's not obvious for the end user. Uh, to, you know, to go to program files on the yeah. Side. One thing we have to kind of for, uh, realize or just uh, be aware of is that we, as developers, we're kind of living in a specialized bubble, right? Yeah. We're we're at a certain experience level with computers and software that um, is beyond kind of the average user. So we, we keep forgetting that we're in this this high tech bubble, but not everyone is in that bubble. <laughs> well, and I at the, my presentation I even asked, you know, how many of you actually write applications where your end user is a technician, a scientist, or an engineer? And you know, being at a LabVIEW uh, conference at NI Week, I was expecting more than half of the room to raise their hands, and it turned out that no, it was less than half of the room that raised their hands. So we are the more LabVIEW becomes more powerful and uh, more used in different areas, the more we are using applications or creating applications that are not necessarily for uh, uh, scientists and engineers and technicians to automate the the world around them. Uh, We are creating more applications that are, you know, for the general public. I mean, I I understand some of the the examples you have here because as as developer of VIPM itself, uh, which is an application that's installed by thousands, Mm -hmm. uh, you have to kind of Get in, take into account all different, you know, operating systems and environments and uh, possible user configurations that are really out of your control. So. Yeah, and it is really hard. I mean, uh, I remember I sent you once that once a uh, bug report of uh, you know installing Windows Japanese, and I was like, uh, look, Michael, I'm sure you know you, <laughs> you haven't tested this one, but here, FYI. So we talked a little bit about the installer experience, and uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you use uh, Deploy from Wirebird Labs. Yes. And uh, that's that's a great tool for uh, going one step beyond the basic NI installer, right? Yes, and it also uh, makes it really easy and repeatable to do installers. This particular customer that I showed the demo at uh, the presentation wants weekly releases. Um, so we, uh, I mean, Delacor needed really something that was going to be repeatable and easy to, you know, we build the application and then just hit build and deploy and you get a nice professional web page that has the change log 
all the uh, bug fixes for that release, anything that we're working on, with links to uh, the bug report uh, tool that we use. And then a nice big green button that says download and uh, and downloads a single executable, no extra files, just yeah. a single executable. And like I think Jack uh, calls it uh, just, you know, a forehead installer where you just click one button and you have everything done. So yeah, it has well, been very useful for that. He calls it a forehead install because the user can just slam his forehead on the space bar. And then... <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, that's all they need to know. Uh, yeah. So moving on, so you have a, uh, in this in this section, there's, uh, like you said, the first experience. And part of that is also uh, how your application looks, right? Just the yeah. UI. Probably you and I, they, we both use uh, system controls, right? Yes, that's something that I, you know, I used to use uh, modern controls. I remember Jeffrey once, uh, you know, early on telling me, you know, using modern controls is going to date your applications. And I didn't really understand what he meant when I was just starting on this business, but now I totally understand. Because you go see applications that are using classic controls or uh, modern controls and it dates the application. You can tell, okay, this application was done, you know, starting with LabVIEW 5 or, or LabVIEW 7, where if you use system controls, when you upgrade Windows, your application it looks fresh and yeah. that it belongs in the operating system. And I had another customer once uh, calling me and saying, oh, Fabiola, I get a LabVIEW report, and uh, a LabVIEW error and a Windows error. And I was like, wait a second, how are you able to differentiate between what is a Windows error and what is a LabVIEW error? And he sent me screenshots. And what it was, was that the first one was the regular LabVIEW, you know, simple error handler dialog box yeah. that he was getting. And the second one was a dialog that I had done for him that had system controls. So it was still done in LabVIEW, but he was reporting it as a Windows error because the window, the window looked like a Windows window. Uh, I see. That's, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, another aspect to applications that a lot of people kind of uh, overlook is the splash screen. Yeah, uh, yeah, that one I've 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 started to use it even for smaller um, applications because there's always something you're having to load or 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 set up behind the scenes, and it also kind of like builds in on more on the we're building for humans. Uh, builds up the anticipation of you're going to be using this application. And like, for example, VI Package Manager, I mean, I see that and I smile. It's, it's, it has nice art. Uh, it looks good. So uh, you, you want to have that. And also, one thing that um, I don't like, I don't like applications that don't tell you what's going on. I want to know if the application hang. Um, and a splash screen, I mean, Mavi does it too, shows you in very unobtrusive text on the bottom what's going on. Loading database, contacting network, uh, connecting to instruments. All of those uh, little texts, it's there to show the user that something is happening, but it's also there for us. When you get a call, A, the system is hanging, the user can send you either a screenshot or you can uh, share screens and see, oh, it hung at connecting to the database. There yeah. must be something wrong with the database. Or it hung when it was connecting to the internet. Oh, it turns out you're inside a firewall. Uh, it's a lot easier to help uh, the customer troubleshoot the problems at that point. So I think it's a one-stop information for everyone. You get version information. You get the name of the company. You might even get some links to going to help or other stuff. And it's just packaging too, right? Yeah, yeah. It it's, pre it's a presentation. It's, yeah. you know, you go into one restaurant and they just put the food on the plate and then you go to another one and it, the food is smaller, but it looks nicer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a different approach. Um, speaking of status, uh, I was just at the other day, I was at a customer and uh, they had a, um, they were running a test sequence. Of, it was all written in LabVIEW. It wasn't using test stand or anything, but um, the, they hit the start button and it goes through its test sequence, but there was no status on the screen to indicate what step in the test sequence it was running. Yeah. So the customer says, um, I, I don't know what's going on now. <laughs> this was some old software we were updating and uh, simply just putting in like uh, a text. I, I created quickly a functional global, you know, with some text input and then just read it on the, in another location and just displayed a text on the screen saying, okay, now doing this test, now doing that test. Now this step of one of 10 or whatever. 
<clears throat> and just that gives the it makes you feel so much better like oh okay i know what's going on now well, uh, it's, and also, it's just not it's not hanging you know you don't you know well and also the other thing is it makes the time go uh faster yeah. i mean i know i know this sounds silly but it makes the time go faster because now while you're just looking at a spinning you know <laughs> weight thing from windows you might you don't know what's going on but when you actually get information on what's going on it's like, oh, okay, I know that part of the test takes about three minutes, so you can go mind your own business and come back. When yeah. when you don't know where it's at, um, you start to get impatient, and the three minutes seem like an hour. Just like, so, just like watching an egg boil, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it never boils when you're watching it. Um, yeah, it's, it's more psychological because the, the human mind has, uh, has difficulty without a frame of reference of telling how long something's taking. Yes. Um, so, and then... Later, when we recall things, we say, oh, this thing took forever. You know, it's, oh, this software is slow. It's whatever, like when you're recalling it. But actually, it wasn't that slow. It was maybe just 30 seconds or something. But um, in their mind, it was very, very long. Yes. And that's also one thing that I like about Deploy, by the way. It, when you're deploying, it actually gives you an estimate of how long it's going to take to, uh, to, to deploy to the website. Mm-hmm. So you don't get impatient. You basically say, okay, I have about, uh, you know, 10 minutes. Uh, I'll come back later and see how it's doing. So you can go do other things uh, instead of just sitting there waiting for it to upload. One thing you mentioned as well is um, the version of your application and kind of presenting that to the user. What yeah. uh, what, what kind of tip do you have there? Uh, so there's and, a, and, a, and why is that important? So this came from um, another customer. This was a customer that was already selling. It's an OEM. It has hardware installed inside of their devices, a little touchscreen, and they send this to their customers. And, um, you know, customers were sending snapshots or whatever. And they had a very complicated system of, of figuring out what was the version that customers were using. And I was like, you know, you can reduce your support calls just by putting it right there, either on the about window or on the splash screen. And and we just know right away uh, how stale the version they're using is. Because sometimes, you know, uh, somebody calls with a report and you're like, oh, this is a known issue that was fixed two versions ago. Um, is it something that is rearing its ugly head again? Or is it because the customer is using an older version? So that's uh, that, that's why I started including it. Um, it also, when you're working with customers that are a single user, you can also see if they have the latest version you send them, or if they happen to have something saved on their email and install that by mistake. So it's just a quick, you know, let's check where we're at uh, type of deal. And as far as how to do it, um, on the presentation, I show the... Um, uh, the VI, it's called file version info.vi, and is one of those uh, VIs that's hidden on VI library. You cannot find it on the palettes. Uh, so, and I might change the way this uh, works, but um, but that gives you file version, product name, internal name, company name, everything that you put on your build specification is shown there. Um, so you can use that to display if you want it. <laughs> yeah, so for an executable, I always use the method that you described, which is getting using that file version info uh-huh. VI. That's the easiest because I don't have to think about it. It just yeah. it's I don't I don't have to do any extra step to add the version somewhere where the user yeah. sees it. Um, it's just it just happens. Well, one thing that we also done for tools, uh, the VI package manager has. If you're using the professional version, you can uh, have post build actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of or pre-built actions, and one of the things that we're doing with the toolkits uh, that we're releasing is we're created a VI that goes throughout all the VI descriptions on the VIs that get installed with the package, and adds at the bottom the name of the product and the version number, because otherwise they have to go to VI package manager to look at the version. This way, when they're doing Control H over a VI to look at the documentation, they have the version right there. So when I'm doing tests uh, with my my customer that's doing the instrument, uh, we can right away he can tell me right away what version of the package he's using. So that's something we started to do as well. Uh, one other thing, I guess I, I I can add to this, you know, presenting the user with info about what what application version it is and, and those type of things is sometimes um, when the user is within the application, they'd like to know the release notes of of that version or maybe oh, so having a link for that. Um, you can have links that uh, somehow in the about that go to the release notes on the web if, if you have it, which is, mm-hmm. which is nice. 
And you can also possibly, as part of your build process, you can add those release notes in a text file that gets included in your installer and it loads them up or something. But anyway, it'd be nice to give the users, because I get this question all the time. I just installed this new version. Okay, what changed? And to provide some way to access that through your software is nice. Yeah, that, that's definitely a good idea. Uh and uh, as part of this, uh, you know, again, this user experience thing, I noticed one thing is probably your pet peeve, right? Uh, and it's the issue of a lot of people um, don't allow their application to close using the X in the oh, top yeah. right corner. <laughs> this one is my biggest pet peeve. And I think it's, there's historical reasons. Labio, uh, for the longest time until I think 2013 or 2012, I don't know exactly the release, uh, event structures were not available in the base package of Labio. So all the examples uh, that were generic could not use the event structure. And, and we came from the, you know, ages of uh, polling and asking. Um, one thing that I started to realize once I went outside of LabVIEW users, the people that already know LabVIEW, was that the stop button that we put on every single thing, every first LabVIEW example you do, is the most unintuitive thing. Um, and uh, again, observing operators, uh, I have this story that I always tell when I teach classes, uh, I second shift, and I don't know why it's the second shift, but second shift would always have problems where they would lose connection with the serial port and they had to reboot the machine. So they, they, you know, they would call me and say, we don't know what's going on. And I, was, I would ask them, did they press the stop button? Did they press the stop button? Every time they would say yes. So finally I was like, you know what, I'm going to put just a log, I'm going to go observe what they're doing. Uh, guess what button they were pressing? This was running on the uh, uh, environment, on lab environment. It wasn't an executable. Oh, it was not an executable? No, it was not oh, an executable. Oh, they were clicking the abort button on the... They were clicking the abort button on the tool. <laughs> on the VI. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, I, I basically did something that it was... I was just got so upset that we were training them and everything. And I basically ended up putting, disabling the abort button, putting an arrow saying, looking for this, press this. Right, that was my solution. Um, the the line, <laughs> the the boss was not the manager for that line was not very happy with my solution, but it worked. We stopped having problems. Now that was my early days solution. Yeah. Um, now I realize, look, people have been used uh, on Windows to stop applications by closing the window. That's what you do with Word. That's what you do with Excel. That's what you do with Google Chrome. That's what you do with all applications out there. Um, I have customers that disable that that X and then force the users to go to the stop button. And normally the stop button is not, clo not close to that X. It's, it's on the lower right uh, corner, right? Yeah. So you see that's one of the uh, uh, frustration users you see when they go with the mouse and they cannot close it. And they go like, ah, and then, you know, move their mouse to the lower right and then click the stop button. By that time, they're angry. <laughs> um, so I said, wait, wait a second. This is very easy. You just go event structure. Uh, panel close question mark because this is when Labby is trying to tell you, hey, they're trying to close the front panel. Should I let them? And we tell them no, discard, and then I'll just stop the application nicely. Now, the big advantage of this, also from the developer perspective, is that when you're developing, and if you by accident do the same thing, closing the front panel, you don't close the VI. You're still on the development environment. So um, that's, that's, yeah, it's one of my biggest pet peeves. I think the stop button, uh, adding a Boolean on the front panel, that is the stop button should die. <laughs> I, I agree with you 100%. I always have the X and I it's one, le one less button on the user interface and, and let one little less space that you, you can take with buttons and you can put more content on there instead of having this big stop button. Exactly. Uh, and and again, I mean, there are uh, now taking a step back, there's no absolutes. There are occasions where you do need to have it like an no, emergency never. stop. Well, <laughs> an emergency stop that, that yeah, when, yeah. when it needs to be big, easy to find, well, big red, yellow mark that says uh, I need to stop. That might be the only uh, place, but for for the most part, it's really it's really not not needed. If it's just to stop the application, just come on, let them just close the window. So we have, um, yeah. So that was a lot of a lot of good tips there for 
number one of five. Wow, this, we're only at number one still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fab's five little things, but this one number one is a big thing. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's what ends up happening with all the little things is that they took <laughs> a long time. And uh, just to make all this a lot easier, uh, one you when you suggest is that uh, create a template for all of this stuff, like create uh, systems and processes. And one way uh, is, you know, use a like queued message handler template or, or some other template in your project that to make this a lot easier for you, right? Yeah. And, that, and like the QMH template project actually ships with LabVIEW 2012 and LabVIEW 2013. A lot of people don't know about this, but it started on 2012. If you click on the create project, it, uh, it gives you uh, template projects. And one of them is the QMessage handler. And it already does some of these things for you. It still has the stop button on the front panel. I couldn't uh, win that battle with uh, Darren uh, when uh, he asked me to review the, the template. But, uh, but it also has the, the, the panel close. And I've actually seen these with some of the contractors that work with me, is that uh, they are so used to having templates. I have that. The JKI Stay Machine has it as well that when they have to create an application from scratch, they forget about the question mark. Because it's something that they don't think about anymore. Uh, it's just done for them on the templates. So that's why either use a template that's already out there or create your own and make sure you uh, address all these little things. Yeah. Uh, getting the version, if it's already there, you don't have to think about it. And uh, you won't have an angry customer that you have all the requirements met, but you didn't meet those little things yeah definitely you can create your own uh, custom template that has you know the main application with a splash screen and mm -hmm. um, the file version the exe version loading and all that stuff so you're ready to go exactly so let's jump to number two of, uh, of the five little things and uh, number two is the application knows the user yeah, this one is, uh, again, it's something that you're actually uh, expecting as a user from some of the applications out there. Uh, it, just an example, an application that's common for all of us, LabVIEW. Once you put the, uh, you know, don't put uh, terminals as uh, icons on my block diagram, you expect that that's just going to be there every time you open LabVIEW. You don't expect to have to go and disable that every time. Um, there's also other things like if you open a window on the top left and you move it to the top right, you expect it that next time you open the application, the window is on that uh, region. There's a lot of little things like that that you don't realize that the program is doing for you, but that users are expecting uh, to be there. So these uh, are so these are uh, basically uh, configurations and things that is specific to that run of the application or that user, or that installation, right? Exactly, exactly. And this is actually one of my pet peeves with, with LabVIEW. When you upgrade LabVIEW, you have to go and uh, redo all those things or remember to copy your INI file. Uh, so, so already has all those settings. And it's because LabVIEW installs in a different uh, directory for depending on the version you're on. Normally, the applications that we work on, we don't have different directories. We just upgrade the application. So we have the benefit that we can say instead of installing a configure a new configuration file with default values i'll respect whatever the customer has there so the new application um, has it and my number one example of this is i have a customer that is colorblind and he works on a team that he's the only one who's colorblind so if we want the application to work for him it won't work for anyone else when he uses it on his computer, it works fine because he has his Windows system. And again, another reason to use system controls and system colors. He has it already set for colors that work for him, so it works well. But when he has to work on a shared computer with the rest of the team, he cannot use the application. So the application needs to, to know who is using the application. So we, we devise a, a thing where you log in, and the only reason that you log in is so the application knows uh, what settings to use. And then yeah. when he logs in, he has uh, all, you know, high contrast, uh, thick lines, um, things that work for him that don't necessarily work for the other users. Yeah, that's a good idea. One one uh, uh, method that you describe, and which is something I use as well, uh, is instead of installing a configuration file with your application, uh, which could be a bit of a challenge, you can have the application automatically create its own file, right, with some default values. Yeah, I, I started doing this, uh, especially when I would get applications that needed thing that require the configuration file to run, like otherwise the application would not run. Um, if the customer enters, uh, instead of using whatever uh, 
graphical user interface you provide to edit the configuration. If they try to go and edit it themselves directly on Notepad, they can corrupt the file. Not because they intended to, it's just, you know, an accident, add in an extra enter or change one of the tags or whatever. And, uh, and then the application doesn't run. So the nice thing is that I can just tell them, delete the configuration file and run again. And the you know, and the application will run with the default values. So there is an easy way to recover. And I also started to do this because uh, a customer that had an application on Windows, I think it was Windows 95 or Windows XP, and the computer died. And, uh, and then, you know, they were able to retrieve the whole thing from the drive and move to a different computer. And the application would not work. Well, it turns out that they retrieved everything except for the max configuration file. And that's what would tell the the, the board what device yeah. name it had and all that stuff. I don't use max configuration files because of that reason. I I configure all my channels and everything um, in, in uh, that application. Yeah, in software. So do have I. the application do it. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I do that as well. It's uh, I have yet to find a great way to transfer max settings and they're so uh, dependent on there's so many variables to the <laughs> make sure yeah. that, that you have to take care of that i just do it myself so yeah one tip there is uh what i i use max for is to actually set up the channel with all the parameters and then i take that max constant i drag that max uh channel name or whatever into lab view into oh. a, into a vi diagram uh -huh. and then i right click on the constant say create code uh, from, wow, I knew you could do that from the VacuumX Assistant. I didn't know you could do it from a task uh, channel. Yeah, you just drag that channel right on a VI diagram, and then you right-click uh, and say, Create Configuration Code. And it basically also, takes all your settings and creates code for you, and then you just save it into your project, and you're done. And then This is great, Michael. This is, Thank you so much. I learned something. <laughs> uh, so I use Max to test everything to make sure it's working, and once I have it just right, I just take it over there, and then basically... It, I can avoid the whole max configuration yeah. issue. My my workflow has been to use use the Acamex assistant uh, setting up already on the you know on the panels have that working and then right click on the Acamex assistant and say generate code. Yeah, you and can I have do the that. feeling can, is mm -hmm. the same thing. It's the same thing probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One more tip, I guess, uh, with the having your application create config files mm -hmm. is uh, if you if you put the configuration file in your installer and it's a configuration file that your application modifies like over time, like, you know, like custom settings or whatever, uh, or it could be, you know, DAC ranges or something that the user defines and it updates the file. If you then upgrade your application and that configuration file is in the installer, it'll overwrite the old configuration file, right? Yes. yes so that's, that it'll actually destroy your old configurations. Yes. Um, so that's something I, I learned the hard way as well. So better to have it kind of dynamically created. So it's a new file that the installer doesn't know about. Um, yeah. So then it won't get overridden. Another thing that you mentioned in as far as configuration files is if you have constants on your diagram. That, oh, yeah. This mm -hmm. is another one of my big pet peeves. Mm -hmm. um, so a constant, pi is a constant, right? It's 3.1415, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not going to change. The number of hours in a day is 24. That's a constant. Number of seconds in a minute, that's a constant. But um, I, I used the comic on the presentation, you know, the number of flux capacitors in the DeLorean uh, is one, but Doc might change his mind. Uh, also, there's a joke of the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity to power the DeLorean, if <laughs> yeah. you're a Back to the Future uh, fan. Yep. Um, he can change that. And that's one thing that has happened over and over every project I work with. A customer will tell you, will swear that this number has been set in stone and it's not going to change. And as they start using the application, they come back and it's like, um, so how much trouble would be to change that 25 to a 10? Um, and, you know, if you have to go hunt for it in like 10 different places, 15 different places, you're going to forget one of them. So it's better to, uh, to use, I call those variable constants. Uh, one way of addressing them is to use global variables and then just have, you know, a global variable that has default values and it's you never write to it and then you just read from it. Um, however, what I've also found out is that sometimes it's not as easy as saying I'm going to replace that 25 with a 10. It comes out that they actually want to do some sort of operation based on another input or... Um, or depending on what uh, what user profile is, what that number is going to be. Yeah. So I rather use something that I call constant VI, 
And it's basically a block diagram that has a constant connected to an indicator, and the indicator is connected to the connector pane. And the reason I do that is I can find on the project file all colors. I can find all the places where I'm using it, because that's one of the things that uh, global proponents come back and tell me. But the global, I can right-click and find all the places I'm writing to it. Well, I can go to the project and find all the colors for this BI. And if in the future I need to change it and it has to involve code, the global variable does not have a block diagram. My constant BI does have a block diagram. And the third reason why I'd rather use the constant BI than instead of a global variable is that, uh, and this is something I learned from Nancy Hollenbeck, if you have a team of developers, it doesn't matter that you set up the rule that globals are write once, read many. Somebody is going to have the temptation to write to it. Yeah. And now you have a situation where you either have a race condition or you have a certain pace place on the code that overwrites <laughs> what the constant was supposed to be. So that's why I stick with constant VIs. So basically, uh, you have a VI that all it has is a, a constant on the diagram and just writes to an indicator. And then um, in the future, down the road, you can potentially go inside this VI and add more logic. Like uh, instead of just having the constant, you can have it read it from a file or something. Yes. Uh, or do some other math that you, that you need to do on that. So that's that's pretty useful. I, I I do that all the time as well. It's a lot easier to find all instances than it is to to to, to find things any other way. Yeah, and uh, and and I also one other big pet peeve that I have with constants is label your constants. So so far we've uh, talked about um, users judge an application by its cover. That's number one. Number two is the application knows the user, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, number three, you have translate geek speak to user speak. Yes, <laughs> that one is uh, my favorite. Um, uh, I think I've—I—I uh, I, I cannot tell you how many times. And I don't—I don't know if it's because English is my second language, but sometimes you know, uh, getting a software exception error. Yes, it looks very professional, but it doesn't give me any information. I like to make my customers feel empowered and be able to solve their own problems, and if they still call me that I have enough information to help them fast. I don't have any interest on, you know, uh, draining them with maintenance fees later on. So I always try to put my error messages to have some information. So for example, if the device is not found, I put some suggestions like maybe the cable was disconnected, maybe try this. Now users still might not read that, but if they take a snapshot and they send it to me, I can actually highlight on the image back to them, look, uh, I think you need to follow some of these suggestions here um, and that might help you found, find what the problem is. And the first couple of times, they're still going to do that. The next few times, they're going to read what I put on the text uh, before calling me and they're going to just start knowing how to troubleshoot their application. Uh, but if you have some convoluted message, geek message that says, you know, com port, uh, alias, GPIB, colon, colon, ASRL, it's not working or, you know, failure to communicate or whatever, the user is not going to read the entire sentence. And it's because it's geek uh, speech to them. Or error 42. Or error 42, yeah. <laughs> and that's like on the error handling side of thing. Now, another example, typical example of geek speak uh, for us is if you're connecting to a device, having COM1, COM2, COM3, COM4, that doesn't um, help the user who's uh, not advanced enough. But if you have the name of the device, then they're going to know. So you could have, I don't know, oscilloscope 1, oscilloscope 2, yeah. and they will know which one to connect to. Yes, it requires more programming on our part. Now you need to go discovering devices and stuff like that. But again, it's just going to lead to less uh, problems when the user is trying to communicate with the wrong port, and that's why the application doesn't work. So... Uh, it just makes it easier for them to understand how to use it. Also, using talking to them and figuring out what are the domain-specific words that are going to be uh, understood better by them. Like, I have a customer that works uh, with chemists, right? And I would put ingredients, and he would be like, no, 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 no. They're called reagents. Okay. So if I use the word reagent, it's going to be understood by the end user better than if I use uh, the word uh ingredient, right? Because I'm coming from the recipe, thinking of it as a recipe, and they're coming more for um, the, you know, chemistry background. So that's also important. Sometimes you do need to leave it at geek, but it has to be a geek for the domain 
expertise, uh, the main area, and not a lab you geek uh, right. message. Mm -hmm. So uh, number four on our list is uh, the building blocks. And what do you mean by that? Okay, so um, this is something that I realized that uh, that I was doing uh, without really realizing that it was a process. And it was helping a lot of my users. So organize your project into sections. Uh, I don't know if you have this experience, Michael, but I've had situations where, you know, they call you and they're like, oh, you're the guy who's going to be working on the VI. Or, and, or the girl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, get, like, you get very <laughs> nervous when they say... Oh, so you're here. This is Fabiola. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. Oh, so you're here to work on the VI. Yeah. I tremble when I hear that because it's literally a VI that it's, you know, 20 pages long by 30 pages down uh, on the blog diagram because they were afraid of using sub-VIs. Um, so, the, I mean, of course, I'm exaggerating, although I think I've seen that. Um, when you have something like that and it's so interconnected is really hard to troubleshoot or make small changes because you have to run the entire system to make it. So one thing that uh, I realized early on is that I would always make little modules. Um, and, you know, early on was uh, just, just different folders. Then I learned about project libraries and I started separating them in libraries. Then I started doing classes. But the idea was always, if I have an application that has, for example, motors and valves, and, you know, and, and a, a, I don't know, a user interface, I would separate, I would code them separately. And I would also add a simulated version for each one of them. So in the case where there's a, a bug, I will run the block, the module that deals with the motors by itself. Am I able to communicate with it? Am I getting the message? Is the motor moving to the right position? Okay, so the problem is not here. Now let me connect it to the rest of the application mm -hmm. and test with the rest of the application. So... so so basically, you're uh, talking about how us as developers develop our code and, and making it more modular, I guess, helps in the long run, right? To yes, the end user. Is. Yeah, and I have uh, one of my customers who told me, you know, at the beginning, he was very reluctant because he's like, oh, what well, the application we're doing is very easy. Uh, you know, we should be able to put everything in a single VI. And and I was like, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm going to put, you know, put my foot on the ground and he didn't want to do flowcharts, and if he's here in this uh, interview, he's going to know immediately who he is. Um, he didn't want to do flowcharts or any designing ahead of time because at the beginning he saw it as a waste of time. Uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to let you do that, and we're going to be programming as we go, which I don't agree with, and I'm going to be pointing out throughout the entire process where we're losing time and money because we didn't plan ahead. But one thing that I am going to put my uh, foot on the ground is we're going to do things in separate modules. And uh, the, this application, now he does uh, flowcharts all the time and we do discussions before we start programming because this application that we did modular enough um, has been running for eight months and nobody has complained about it. And when uh, early on when we did have problems with it, we were able to troubleshoot in simulation mode without him interrupting production, uh, you know, having to go to the machine and test directly in the machine. And we were also able to simulate different parts when we had time with the machine to test the different sections. So it just, it's just something that helps not only you as a developer, but it also helps the end user in this case to troubleshoot um, the final application. Yeah, so creating reusable code is, is very good, um, especially you know, using the built-in features of LabVIEW like libraries. Um, to be able to, you know, make things private or public and only have ex exposed things, uh, only only expose public things to people so that they can yeah. use only those things. And that's kind of more for developers using your API, right? Yes. Yes, it is. Now, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of information, but uh, we finally reached the last tip, which uh, la uh, Fab's, uh, a fi uh, Fab's five little things <laughs> is every developer needs a time machine. And I'm kind of suspecting that this has something to do with source code control. <laughs> yeah, this is this is something I call it like that because I I got tired of people not using uh, source code uh, control, and I wanted to kind of put it in a way that it summarizes why it's so cool to have it. Mm -hmm. And I actually started that section of the presentation with um with a comic that I did uh, representing a real uh, life uh, experience I had. Um, I was working with a third-party vendor. He was writing his code in C. Um, uh, it was a motor driver. And we started having um, bugs. 
and problems. And, and we were having a hard time figuring out if it was a bug we had introduced with our software or if it had been a bug he had introduced with the new version of the driver. So, you know, again, my troubleshooting mind was trying to separate things. So I called him and said, you know, the new version introduced bug. And he said, that's impossible. I never add bugs to new releases. Of course, not with those words, but that's pretty much what he said. Uh, and, and I asked him, okay, well, if you tell me what changed, I can at least know what area of the code or the uh, application to look at. No, I cannot tell you. I just change whatever you ask me to change. Um, and then I was like, well, can you revert to the previous version? So that way I can run it and see if everything works with the previous version, then I know it's the new version. Or if everything does not work with the previous version, then I know the problem is not on your code, it's on my code. When he said, nope, I only keep the latest version of the code. So all those three questions is like, you know, if you already know that you add bugs with new releases, that there's a potential of adding bugs with new releases, if you want to be able to tell exactly what change, because even if you don't add comments on source code control, just the fact that you're using source code control tells you which file tends. Um, and if you want the ability of the time machine, of being able to go to an earlier version, then you should be using source code control. So I ask him, um, you know, after all these what version of source code control you're using? And he answered, why would I use source code control if I am a single developer? Um, I actually laughed at him, which probably would have, was not a good um, thing uh, to do, but it's just I just couldn't believe that I was hearing that. And when I was talking to Steve Watts about it, he, he added, you know, good programming practices have nothing to do with marital status. <laughs> and actually, when I said that at the presentation at NI Week, a guy lost it. He was laughing so hard. Um, but it's, I mean, it really is. It's, it's a very important tool. When I teach managing software engineering in LabVIEW, I, I give them a demo about how you can, you know, make tons of changes to your code and be able to go back. And it's just like having access to a, a, a macro undo. So that gives you some freedom to go search uh, from experimentation in some areas. And then if it doesn't work, you know, you can always go back. Yeah. Uh, essentially, source code control is the something that that should be like from day one. Something that you do as a, as a LabVIEW developer is uh, figure out what source control system to use. There's many out there, so just pick one. We don't have any preference as long as you're using it. The people that just keep at it on the same code and have no way of going to previous versions, they're just, uh, you know, it, it's a recipe for disaster. And also they're playing with fire if their uh, repository is not off-site, if they're, you know, saving everything on their computer and their computer crashes, now they lost, you know, months of work. So it's just, it makes sense uh, for different reasons. LabVIEW is not the best because it's binary files and it, it makes it challenging for source code control. But even with those challenges, it's better to be using source code control than not have any source code control. And uh, that was all your five things. So just to recap, we have uh, <laughs> one is users judge an application by its cover, and that's kind of the, uh, the user experience. Uh, two, the application knows the end user, and that's, you know, configuration files and how it adapts. Uh, number three, translate GeekSpeak to user English, which is, you know, <clears throat> popping up messages that make sense to people and uh, giving them suggestions. Number four, the building blocks is how to modularize your application uh, so it's more testable and uh, easier to, to, to develop. And then, of course, number five, every developer needs a time machine, which is, um, again, a reminder for source code control. And if you're not using it, you should. Wow, that's a lot of great information, Fab. And uh, this has gone beyond the, uh, the initial hour that I asked you to to be with me but uh <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm sorry you know you know i love to talk so it is really hard to get <laughs> you love to talk about labview specifically yeah i love yeah. talking about labview as well that's why i have this podcast <laughs> by the way i love it and i am so honored that uh, you asked me to be here because i every time i hear the podcast i feel like i'm having a you know living room conversation with my heroes and love you friends so um i i never expected to be here so thank you well it's it's an honor to have you i think you're a a, a great force in the love you community and you've done a lot of great things for uh spreading uh, better development practices to everyone and uh, this presentation you did at an iWeek was one of them so thank you Thank you, Michael. And thank you all for listening to this episode of VI Shots. 
If you want to leave us feedback, you can do so at bishots.com. And there you can find uh, information uh, and links to all the content mentioned in this uh, podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please support our show and give us feedback on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Thanks again for listening and bye for now.